Opinions expressed are those of the show hosts, not WSTU or Treasure Coast Broadcasters. Any reproduction or reuse of this program without the written consent of WSTU is strictly prohibited. Welcome to Paradox. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 772-220-WSTU. And now your hosts for Paradox, Dr. Ira Perlstein and Dr. Leanne Talton. Good morning, Stuart, Florida. I'm Dr. Ira Perlstein, but I want you to call me Dr. Ira, and I want you to call in. We want you to think that you have a doctor in the car. This is our first episode, Getting to Know Your Doctors. We're going to call it DPC123 because we're both direct primary care physicians. A lot of people call that concierge medicine, but there is a difference, and we're going to talk about that. Let me introduce my co-host, Dr. Leanne Talton. Say good morning, Leanne. Good morning, Ira. Happy to be here. I know you are. I was driving over and I was thinking, God, it is so hot today. It, is. it was like 90 degrees in the shade. My the, I'm frying an egg on my car right now. <laughs> and it's really interesting because a lot of my patients mm. are seasonal okay, people. Sure. And so you know you've really made it in life when you can use summer and winter as verbs. <laughs> so people ask me, where are you summering? I'm summering in Port St. Lucie. Where are you summering? I'm summering in the Hamptons. Well, I'm not. Yeah. Here I am. I'm, I'll be in the office all afternoon again today and, and tomorrow because that's what we do. We see patients. So we want to talk about how hot it is. It was like above 90 degrees here. And, yeah. and that's how the summers are here. It rains every afternoon for those of you who are streaming us from afar. And I think we should do a show on heat-related illnesses. Everything from heat exhaustion to heat stroke. And we'll bring in a neurologist maybe to talk about that. We see a lot of heat-related mm -hmm. illnesses. Stay cool. Stay hydrated. We're going to talk more about that. So I was the guest on... A, a priest, priest and, and a rabbi. rabbi. Yeah. What an austere show. Yeah. And Father Christian Anderson was not on that show, but Rabbi Matthew Durbin, who is my spiritual leader. I felt it was such an austere show. This show is going to be a little bit funnier than that. We're going to be able to add a little bit of humor to what we do because laughter is the best medicine. Okay. Okay. Good. And when I was on that show, when we did the intro to the podcast, Rabbi Durbin asked me, what about the snake? And it's a great show. If you guys haven't caught that show, it's every Friday morning from 9 to 10 o'clock right here on WSTU and Stewart. But he asked me, what about the snake? And I go, what about the snake? He goes, well, you know, it's a symbol of medicine. We never got to that. Yeah. So I think every week we're going to bring in a little bit of a did you know, something in medical knowledge that... They don't really teach you in medical school, and people always ask about. Okay, so there are two there are two snakes with a set of wings, and that is called the caduceus, and that's actually the staff of Hermes, H E R M E S. Okay, not like the designer store, not like Gucci. It's, right. it's not like the stores on and Worth Avenue and the Upper East Side. Let me just side. take a moment here for those of you who don't know him. Ira is very fashionable. Yeah. We're, we're going to get to that later. All right. So we're going to get to how you should dress in the office. And, yeah. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> so that's the staff of Hermes. And Hermes was actually not the god of medicine. He was the god of transitions and borders. Hmm. Uh, we're not going to get political about transitions and borders, no. but that's what he did. <laughs> yeah. So too actually, soon, too soon. Too, way too soon for that. <laughs> yeah. So actually, the staff of Hermes uh -huh. is a symbol of commerce. Huh. But hospitals adopt, adapted it adopted or adapted i think they adapted it because to adopt it they'd have to okay they adapted it <laughs> so, also too soon uh, way too soon so hospitals adapted that symbol with the two snakes going up the staff mm. that's actually a symbol of commerce the caduceus has nothing to do with medicine actually the rod of asclepius a-s-c-l-e-p-i-u-s is actually the true symbol of medicine it doesn't have the wings on it, and it only has one snake going up the rod. Hmm. So who was Asclepius? He was the son of the Greek god Apollo. Oh, yeah. Yeah, remember that from hmm. Greek mythology? Sure. So Asclepius was actually the god of medicine and healing. So Rabbi Durbin had asked me, why the snake? Yeah. 
Yeah, why the snake? Because of the snake in the Garden of Eden, that whole that whole thing. Yeah. But the snake in Greek mythology mm -hmm. is actually the symbol of healing and rebirth. Ah. So that's why the snakes. Snakes shed their skin, they continue to grow. Healing of healing and rebirth. That's why the snake. Rabbi Durbin, I hope you're listening. There's the answer All right. uh, to your well question why the yeah. snake. Yeah, they, they don't teach you that in medical school. But what they do teach you in medical school is how to become a doctor. But when you graduate medical school, you don't know anything. You learn everything in your residency training. Right. And you might want to say that good judgment comes from bad judgment, which comes from experience. Or maybe that's why we just call it practice. Practice, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so about four and a half years ago, I went into, most people will call it concierge medicine, but it's really DPC medicine direct primary care. Some people call it direct patient care because you don't have to be a primary care physician to do it. We thought it was a better way to practice medicine. Uh, concierge medicine kind of has a nasty connotation that we only treat it the wealthy. It sounds fancy, yeah. It sounds fancy. Wasn't there a TV show about that too? Dr. Fleshman or... Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. but hey, up in the Hamptons. Yeah, in the Hamptons. Yeah, right? A lot of what we do yeah. is like that. Yeah. But of what we really do is just good old-fashioned medicine mm. with modern technology and we try to keep it affordable mm -hmm. so if you don't have insurance or if you have a high deductible you can see us for a monthly fee as many times as you want i always liken it to a gym membership it's like a gym membership oh. the difference is most people don't use their gym memberships no <laughs> no i use my gym membership good yeah i've recently dropped like 40 pounds recent recent R recent recent i'm going to the gym four times a week Wow. Yeah. 40 pounds. 40 pounds. That's pretty significant. Are we going to have a show about that? We are going to have a show about that. Wait, you know what You know what it's called? It's called Lifestyle Modification. Okay. And it's called Diet is Math. You know why diet is math? No. Because it's all about calories in, calories oh, yeah. out. Everything else is really a fad diet. Calories in, calories out. We can talk about that later on. But, right. and, and we will. Yeah. We will. It's what we're patients want to talk about. Yeah. yeah. We're going to talk about what you want to talk about. That's why we want you to call in to 772-220-9788. We're here to take your calls. Today, we're going to talk about why DPC and what we do. And I am going to have Dr. Leanne Talton, Dr. Le Leanne, tell us a little bit about herself. Well, Dr. Ira, I'm a Stewart native. I was born here at Martin Memorial. Wow. Cool. Yep, only 17 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> my both of my parents were born here too. Child oh, prodigy. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I'm so smart. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I'm from here. My whole family lives here. We're having a big birthday party this weekend. Family gatherings for me involve like multiple portable tables and chairs, yeah. like 30 people. That's yeah. that's the average Easter gathering. Nice. So yeah, so we're doing that this weekend for my kids' third birthday, and I have three of those kids. All under five. Yeah. I have, wow. I have five-year-old twins, Matthew and Natalie, and a three-year-old Patrick. New, newly three as of Sunday. Yeah. And um, So her house is buzzing. Yeah. For not just having three oh, kids, five and under. There's the punny joke. There's the pun. <laughs> She's a beekeeper. Uh, New uh -uh. beekeeper, novice beekeeper. My husband and I just started in February. Right. He's he come he comes from North Carolina. His actually, my parents in law are listening right now. They're at my house getting ready for the birthday party, and he grew up on a farm, and mm. so he's always been interested in agriculture. And I saw him Google searching bees and beekeeping, and we took the plunge and took a class in February and got our first bees this past March from the Honey Honey Company. They right. we bought some bees from them. I know and Jennifer real well. She's yeah. a wonderful lady. Yeah. yeah. And it's been it's been an adventure. And actually we're getting nervous because we're having this big birthday party this weekend. And I don't know if you know this, but bees get hungry when there's not enough pollen. And and so for the past few bee checks, my husband's been getting stung and we're like, this is great. We're going to have this big party. All these kids, everyone's running and screaming from hangry bees. And uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. But I fed them and everything should be okay now. Where do you feed the bees? Well, bees eat nectar. And so they have sugar water feeders to replace the nectar. And I just recently bought some pollen patties and they like pollen. Pollen is their protein source. Now they leave the hive and come back. And how does that work? Or are they always in the hive? Yeah. So they have, they have a life cycle. And so each worker bee 
has each job as it gets older. So baby bees, when they're first born, are the nursemaids for the unborn baby bees. And then they graduate and become guards of the beehive. And then eventually their last job is to be the forager, where they fly up to five miles away to go collect resources, bring them back to the hive. And then they turn that into pollen cakes that they eat for protein and then also honey, which ideally we'll be able to harvest this year. You're first on the list, Ira. I already got you down. I can't wait. I know. And, and there's so many different varieties of honey, which is really neat. There's wildflower. There's uh yeah, Orange, so that's what that's actually right? what, uh, one of the things that Jennifer yeah. does is she's a honey judge. Yeah. So they have honey competitions, and I think that it's the color of the honey that main and taste, of course, right. that mainly designates what pollen source it came from. And so. that can be changed by what you give them as nutrients. And well, you know them. what? We only have to give them something now in because there's not enough. But normal circumstances, bees are resourceful. They will go find what's blooming. So yeah, throughout the year, their pollen source will change and the honey characteristics will change. Now yeah. you had a hive escape. I did. What happened? I did. We don't know. And so, you know, that's what's... <laughs> I, I, yeah, apparently I just the collect yes. things to take care of. And so now I have like 50,000 little bee babies. But yeah, so our first, one of our first colonies, um, you see, now you have to use the right words here because the other beekeepers, we call each other beaks. <laughs> the other beekeepers will get mad if I use the wrong terminology, but we think that they split. They may have absconded, but half the hive took off with the new queen and we had, you know, a, this baby colony split in half. So it was even smaller. Oh and so then my husband's bees, which are right next door, started robbing my beehive for honey. And so this in, I have a, I have a five-year-old son, Matthew. So hit, this is Matthew's dream is that we're having bee wars in the backyard. <laughs> wow. And so what he likes to, he likes to tell the story. He says like, mom, dad's bees defeated your bees. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yes, go dad. Dad's the winner always. So how do you keep the kids, mm -hmm. three kids, five and under from getting stung? They, um, you know, kids are smart. Yeah. They, uh, they know not to go. Oh, Jat has been stung. Jat's the only one that's been stung. I have not been stung. The kids haven't been stung. They just know. And, you know, kids are kind of like, you know, they're only interested in things that serve them. So yeah. those bees are boring after a while. Yeah. They don't think it's interesting at all anymore, I don't think. Now, do you have to wear those suits with oh, the nets? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a cute thing. Like, we went to the bee school, and, of course, like, all the man – Man beekeepers were, you know, lo looking each other up and down and saying, I'm just going to have a veil. Oh, no, I'm just I'm just going to have the top. You know, <laughs> nobody nobody's, you know, going to confess that everyone everyone doesn't like to get stung like right. no one does. So, of course, I go in there and I'm like, we're going to get the full suit and we're going to get a large. So it fits you, too. I don't need it. Get the medium. We got the large. He wears wow. it every time. The whole thing. Yeah. You know, I'm picking up on the imagery and I've yeah. been watching the series Stranger Things. <laughs> yeah. I'm picking up on the image of these guys in white suits yes. trying to close the door yes. so that the monsters can't attack them. Yes. Is it, yes. it kind of like that? Well, yeah. And so it's so hot. And so you're supposed to inspect bees in the middle of the day because they are the, you know, a large portion of the population goes off to forage in the middle of the day. So you'll have fewer bees in the okay. middle of the day if you inspect. So you're not supposed to inspect in the rain. You're not supposed to inspect at dusk. So I had to go in to put this pollen patty in and I pop the top of the beehive and you know how like when you walk into a restaurant or an auditorium and like every single face turns to look at you at the same time that's what happened so I say like the whole top of the beehive is coated in bees you know thousands of th and they all turn to look at me and it's like hey guys <laughs> but I had the suit on I had the suit on well that that is so interesting now do you what do you use I, I see some of these videos where people use smoke yeah. So the smoke. How does that work? Yeah. So people think the smoke is a sedative, like B Xanax, but it's not. It's actually a. Um, it confuses the pheromone signal. So bees communicate to each other with with uh, aerosolized chemicals, for lack of a better mm -hmm. word. Mm -hmm. And so if the other bees cannot get the signal that danger has happened, then they they tend to stay calmer. So when we did the bee school, one of the bee uh, beekeeper teachers got stung on the hand and immediately started spraying his hand with the smoke because that bee that he smashed on his hand that stung him is going to emit pheromones that say, get him. Ah. <laughs> yeah. So the smoke ah. is mainly to just disguise that bee communication thing. So when one attacks, you're likely to get attacked by multiple bees. Oh, sure. Bees yeah, and... yeah. Absolutely. Wow.
So and you got anaphylactic so, shock. Yeah. So do, so do you keep do. EpiPens at home? Well, you know, I had a plan to do that, but as you know, EpiPens have gotten expensive. No one that I know of in my family is allergic to bees, but I did think that that'd be wise to have on hand. Uh, I've yeah. gotten around that EpiPen expense with a lot of my patients who have allergies, anaphylaxis, mm. peanut butter. What we do in our office is we order them a vial of epinephrine. Okay. And I draw up syringes for them and they keep them in the refrigerator. Now you can't, it doesn't have the force to run it through a pair of jeans. They'd actually have to pull down their clothing. Right. But what would cost up to $600, I can literally get it for them for pennies just by pre-drawing their syringes. And we can do that. Yeah. I'm going to take a shameless uh, and, plug and, moment, Ira, because that I think is what makes you so special is that you have the knowledge and the time to actually go through these, you know, challenges that patients have in today with $600 EpiPens and come up with an affordable solution. Right. Well, you and I were both worker bees at one time. There's, uh, a, se there's a segue. Uh, there's a punny segue. Right, there's a punny segue. <laughs> we were worker bees. We both worked for large healthcare corporations. And why did you leave? Ooh, that's such a loaded question. No, no. For why did you? Listeners. No, why um, did? Why did you want to? Yeah, so I'll practice tell you. the way you're practicing now, yes. rather than stay in a large healthcare group. Absolutely. So, you know, I think what one of the generational. Did you know Ira is older than me? We'll just take that moment. Uh, yeah, just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. A little bit. Wait. It's a it's a little embarrassing sometimes yeah. because because my new best friend is a 62 year old man. Yeah. Aww. That that uh, that sounds normal. Yeah, that's that's normal. No, but yeah, so it, we do go places together, and it is a little odd to explain what's happening here. But <laughs> anyway, I'll take any chance I get to get out of the house without those kids. Um, and my daughters don't live in town, so it's nice having another daughter. I'm the surrogate here. daughter. She's my surrogate daughter. Yes, I do have a dad. He's listening too. Hi, dad. Um, yeah. So I. People of my generation, I think, train with the idea that they are going to practice for a large operation because, as we all know, it's really hard to find family medicine doctors that just hang up a shingle and practice on their own. And there's a reason for that. Um, insurance reimbursement rates are typically uh, designated by how much you make that insurance company or save that insurance company. So when you're just a single guy, you collect pennies on the dollar. So when I came back to Stewart, there were just not a lot of opportunities to practice in a small practice. So I started working for a large corporation and it's hard to do that when you're from an area because I'm taking care of family and friends and it's hard to control the patient experience when you work for a large corporation. Yeah. And we can control that patient experience because the average family doctor has somewhere between two and 4,000 patients. But here's the rub. You know, you want that longitudinal care. Mm. It's nice to say, I've been practicing in this community all my life. I have. Mm. When I finished my residency training, uh, 1987, I've practiced in this area since 1987. So I am now taking care of children who were children mm. when I met them. I had, I had a lady come in last week. She's, she's a nurse here in town, uh, a very successful nurse, works for a, a private uh, physician group here in town. And she has a daughter. And I started taking care of her when she was one years old. Wow. Now, I don't see little kids anymore. I just don't feel that comfortable with little kids. I've got, kind of gotten away from that. But adolescents and above, I do take care of. But the average doctor now who works for a large healthcare corporation, what do you think? How long do you think they keep their job? Ooh, well, you know, that that's a tricky question because that's not the same question as how long do they want to keep their job? Right. But did you know that they change jobs about every three to five years? Why do you think I, that is? I think that's because they are reimbursed on what's called an RVU basis, a relative value unit basis. They are contracted by large facilities. They find they have no control over what they do. Uh, they have to give 30 days notice to take a day off to go to the dentist. And I don't think people go to professional school, four years of college, four years of medical school, three to five years of residency to need 
to ask permission to go to the dentist. So I think what you're saying here is alluding to this new concept of physician burnout, which is a really big deal. It costs the health system millions and millions of dollars per year to try to replace physicians constantly who are leaving for reasons that you know, other corporations have figured out a way to have and retention. For the, and for the patient, there's no continuity of care. No. If and your doctor has left, give us a call right now. Let's talk about why your doctor may have left town. And did you feel that you were somewhat shortchanged because you had a good relationship with that doctor? So give us a call at 772-220-WSTU. That's 772-220-9788. Eight. Right. If you're and let's, and let's, and let's discuss that. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Well, so yeah. physician burnout, I think what so I belong to a Facebook group uh, called uh, the Physician Moms Group, which was started by an ER physician somewhere else. And through the years has now grown to I think it has over 70,000 wow. female physician and you have to be a mother, which you know, is relevant because I think when the group first started, there were a lot of topics on child care. And let's be honest, it, it is hard to be a mother and a doctor because of that child care portion of the, you know, it's I'm in charge of the whole thing. So, yeah. So that group has talked about physician burnout. You know, it's a topic every few days. Um, and I think that the main theme is control. And so when physicians can tolerate an awful lot of disappointments and abuse from a system, but I think what is the you know, straw that breaks their back is that loss of control and feeling like they cannot, uh, you know, they don't have control over the product they're delivering to patients. So. Yeah. So that's critical. Yeah, that is critical. Yeah. And, you know, I'm an MD and you're a DO. Yep. Uh, MD is medical doctor. DO is doctor of osteopathy. Yeah. What's the difference? Well, um, osteopathy was born out of allopathic medicine. That's our word we use to describe MD training. It was born out of allopathic medicine. So a lot of our training is exactly the same to the point where many of us are duly accredited, duly, um, you know, licensed and whatnot. Osteopathy has one added benefit, which is the osteopathic manipulation portion of it, which a lot of people think that, you know, this is just what chiropractors do. We're trained in that as well. And um, some of us practice it, some of us don't. But it's a it's a hands-on manipulation of the body to, you know, correct joints and whatnot to make sure that um, nerve signals are being transmitted properly. But now the residency programs mm -hmm. are, are the same. So MDs and DOs go to the same residency programs. In fact, uh, Leanne trained at a sister program to the program I trained in through the uh, Florida system. We both did our specialty training right here in the state of Florida. I did mine through the University of South Florida at Bayfront Medical Center and finished in the spring of 1987. Mm. And Leanne did hers at St. Vincent's in Jacksonville mm -hmm. and finished in Ooh. 2000. 14. 14. Yeah. So. And then came back home with a set of baby twins to raise them up where I was raised up. <laughs> now, her training was a little bit different yeah. because we were into that C1, do one, teach one system. And we were more abused hours wise. Right. You know, I remember. The first year, which they call the internship, which every doctor is required to do an internship. You're not required to do a residency program. You can practice as a GP. We're both boarded in family medicine, which is a specialty. Uh, it uh, evolved in the 1970s. And we have, it's probably one of the largest and most governed medical specialties in the United States. We have to undergo maintenance of certification, be reboarded every 10 years. And although the state requires 40 hours of continuing medical education every two years, in order to maintain our board certification, we have to have a minimum of 50 hours of continuing medical education annually or 150 every three years to help with part of that maintenance of certification. But I remember my internship, which is a rotating internship. So you'll do 
a few months of obstetrics, uh, gynecology. You do a couple months of pediatrics, a couple months of orthopedics, general surgery. We would be on call every other night or at best every third night for a year. And when you switched rotations, they like to put you on call the first night. So if you were on call the last night on one rotation, you could be a call. And I remember one time, oh my goodness, I would I, I went on a Monday morning, yeah, and I didn't get home until Thursday. <laughs> and you were expected to stay awake most of that time. Yeah, that was pretty abusive. They don't do that anymore. Yeah, they don't do that because uh, you know now that we study outcomes, they have likened that sleep deprivation to basically being drunk. Yeah, and so you know we we do we actually have mandatory hours that we have to spend talking about sleep hygiene and sleep deprivation and recognizing the signs of it because let's face it you're responsible for lives so yeah so you trained in a different era than i did i think you know another difference is that when when i was in training not that long ago you know we had entire uh rotations in billing and coding so we came out of you know, our third year of ro- of residency, knowing how to run a clinic with 10 patients in the morning, 10 patients in the afternoon, bill them, code them, do all of the, per- the paperwork correctly. And I think that, you know, I, I don't think that that took away from my medical education, but I definitely think that it's a sign of the times. You have to yeah. understand the business, the business. dynamic. Yeah. Right. And we, we had none of that. Yeah. We, we had none of that training. It was just hospital training, but, but, mm. and, and we had office training as well. But, but here's, here's the rub on that, that we could pretty much be guaranteed that if we finished our residency program, you could literally hang a shingle on the door and be successful. Yeah. You can't do that anymore because medicine is now big business. And I had a colleague of mine who's a local orthopedist in town tell me he remembered and he likened it to a baseball game. And here's an analogy everybody can understand that the doctor's were the ball players. Mm-hmm. Well, we've gone from being the ball players to maybe the peanut vendors. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that's a difference yeah. because we work for these large organizations and it's hard to get in. It's hard to get through on the phone. Yeah. And when you can't see your doctor or you're seeing a mid-level provider and you want to actually what's run, a mid What's a mid-level? A mid-level Lyra. provider is either an ARMP, a nurse practitioner, or a physician assistant, Mm. uh, someone with advanced medical training, not to the level of the doctor, uh, but hospital systems are going more towards mid-level providers because it's about the churn and burn. They're reimbursed. there's a cost savings though too, right? Well, there's there's not a cost savings to the patient. No, no, no. There's a cost saving to the the facility. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So we went into this DPC, direct primary care medicine. And it's a little bit different than concierge medicine because we don't even bill insurance. We just charge a membership fee. Yeah. So wouldn't you say, Ira, that that is the reason why people kind of make that switch over to deep this type of practice is because all of a sudden patients have felt like that relationship with their primary care doctor is no longer there because they just don't get enough time. Well, it's a win-win situation, Leanne. I, I think it's win-win. How much time do you spend with patients now versus your you know, hospital job? A minimum of 30 minutes, but I'll have a new patient. I might spend two hours with them or I might have a patient who has, I will deal with every problem the patient has at that visit. And it's not like, well, we're out of time here. I used to see five to six patients an hour. Now I see five to six patients a day. That's a huge difference. So it's a win for the patient. It's a win for us. And we can pick up on things. I've, I picked up on, I've picked up on stuff as a DPC doctor that I would have never picked up on in my former practice because now I have the time to explore things. See, basically, Leanne and I are detectives, guys. Mm-hmm. We, we, we do a lot of detective work. And so that's why I do this. I, I, I love what I do now. I look forward to going to work every day. Yourself? Likewise. We're gonna, we got to do a break? Yeah. Okay, we'll be back after the break. Don't forget to call us. All right, 220-9788. We'll be right back.
Okay, so we're back. And if you have any questions, give us a call at 772-220-WSTU. That's 772-220-9788. And we're on the air for about another 20 minutes. You know, there was a study that I read, Leanne, and it was published in Forbes magazine, business magazine, but it was actually a reprint of an article that was originally published in 1994. And the study was primary care doctors increase, increase life expectancy. But does anyone really care? Ooh. Because doctors are burning out. Mm -hmm. A lot of patients don't even have primary care doctors and they see specialists. We actually, as primary care doctors, do increase life expectancy and we save lives. You know, the average life expectancy in the United States isn't nearly what people think it is. We're like 26th or 27th mm -hmm. in, in the world. I think we're number 26 yeah. Yeah. In, in life expectancy. Uh, number one, you know what number one is? Take a, take a guess. Oh, it's going to be one of those Norwegian countries. It's actually not. It's Japan. No way. Yeah, and, then, and, and Norwegian countries are right up there. But the average life expectancy in the United States is about 78.8 years. It's the fish. It's got to be the it's, fish. It's, gotta, it's, gotta it's the be. common thread. Well, we, we, we're workaholics. Sardinia yeah. is a good place to live yeah. if you want to live. We, we work for those five flat screens that you have to have in your home. Mm -hmm. And you can only watch one at a time. Yeah. But in Japan, the average life expectancy is over 84 years. So, yeah, but we rank number 26 in life expectancy. But what happened is in this article, and the original article was published in, in, in the International Journal of Health Services in 1994. And the researchers concluded that primary care is by far the most significant variable related to better health status. It correlates with lower mortality, fewer deaths from heart disease and cancer, and a host of other beneficial outcomes. Okay, here's the shock value. That researchers also determined that the number of specialty physicians is positively and significantly related to increased mortality and deaths due to heart disease and cancer and a shorter life expectancy. Now, th that may be somewhat of a slight because I think by the time you see a specialist for advanced disease processes that your mortality and morbidity would be higher. Sure. But the mindset and the mindset in training is also this way that if you see a specialist, let's say I send you Frank to a cardiovascular surgeon and he does a four vessel bypass on you man, that guy saved my life. But what if you saw me 10 years earlier and I prevented yeah. you from ever having to have that bypass by treating your high blood pressure, by diagnosing your heart disease at an earlier stage, by lowering your cholesterol, by putting you on a healthier lifestyle, which is really more life-saving and which is more cost-effective? So what we really need to do is reorient the medical profession from its current expensive clinically based treatment focused practice to a more cost effective prevention oriented primary care system and this was all published in 1994 and then kind of swept under the carpet that's correct it was published 25 years ago and this isn't a joke See, our nation's primary care problem has only gotten worse. And so, too, has the health of American patients. Well, don't you think there's something really special about the relationship between patients and their primary care doctors? In other words, I think that in order for us to be effective, we have to create a bond. You know, what we're asking patients to do a lot of times is take pills, but a lot of times it's to change their lives. And that's not something that you, hey, for the next five minutes, I'm going to tell you why you should change your life in a way that is less enjoyable for you. You know, cut out, cut out things that you love. So if you don't have a relationship with your primary care doctor, you're not going to potentially make these life changing changes. Well, because what I've noticed about what we do versus what specialists do is our approach to medicine is much more collaborative. You come in as a patient, 
we sit down, we talk about things, we give several treatment suggestions, always lifestyle modification as far as, and I just saw an interesting cartoon and it was on Facebook and the cartoon was pills and injections and the line went out the door and lifestyle modification and nobody was in that line <laughs> yeah. because nobody, everybody wants a pill. Everybody yeah. wants the quick fix. I call it the microwave uh, generation, right? We just want to put it in, get it done quick. And, right. So the, yeah. so the only way that you, and, and there's studies that show yeah. this too, right? With smoking cessation, the only way that you're going to do something that you don't really want to do. Well, not the only way, but one of the main influencers is whether or not you want to you know, make your doctor happy and you don't care if your doctor doesn't care. And so that's why, you know, the push for primary care is to be reimbursed better from insurance companies to spend a little bit more time, right? Because as a, an ophthalmologist can see a patient every three to four minutes. They don't even have to take their own notes. They have scribes. But what we do takes time. You don't build relationships in the eight minutes that you're allotted. And we also explain things to patients. Mm -hmm in terms they can understand. Right. You gotta be I, a real I have person. patients come in all the time from specialists. I went and saw him. Did you get his notes? Yeah, I have his notes. Let's talk about it. Good. Because I didn't understand a word he or she said. Did you know that adding 10 primary care physicians to a population of a hundred thousand people is associated with an average life expectancy increase of 51.5 days. And that's compared to, a 19.2 day increase for an equal number of specialists. Let me explain that on better terms, that adding 10 primary care physicians to a population of 100,000 people has a 250% greater influence on life expectancy than an equivalent bump in specialists. But the density of primary care physicians between 2005 and 2015 fell by 11%. Wow. Yeah, that's a horrible statistic. So, you know, I kind of feel bad for our listeners right now, right? Because I feel like, you know, if I'm talking to my patients right now, they're saying, we don't need one more example of how primary care saves lives. We just need more primary care doctors, right? Like everybody's looking for a primary care doctor well, the, well, the, in this town exactly. and can't find one. Exactly. It's the burger versus salad approach. We all know salads are better for us. We're the salads, but people will opt for the burger. Yeah. Because it's quicker and it tastes better. No, I'm th I'm thinking that Stewartians and Port what, what do we call Port St. Lucians? Saint, no, St. Lucy Westonians. Westonians. That's what that's what Colleen says. Saint I'm Lucian. a Westonian. Okay, uh, Westonians. Yeah, so they are saying we want primary care doctors, but where are they? Where have they gone? Yeah, where have they gone? Because the United States doesn't place an emphasis on training primary care physicians for several reasons. This past year, residents are chosen by what's called a match. Mm. And, and every March is match day. And over a thousand residents in the United States did not get a residency program because they didn't match. That doesn't mean that they were unqualified. That doesn't mean that they were bad doctors or they did poorly in medical school. That means that the number of specialist slots mm -hmm. were le markedly less than the people applying for those positions. Mm. And people don't want to be a primary care physician for several reasons. One, we're frontline. We have to answer those phone calls. Two, we make less than most other, other specialties. I'm not of the ilk yet where I can use summer and winter as verbs. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I don't summer anywhere. I don't winter anywhere. I work. Well, let's face it. We're, we're basically just summering. Yeah. Here. We're, we're, su we're summering now. We're summering at WSDU in here. All the story. time. Right. All the time. All year round. But the culture of medicine doesn't value doctors yeah. that provide long-term care. They value doctors who deliver immediate care with visible results. Plastic surgeons. Yeah. Look at my face lift. Right. When's the last time you had your cholesterol check? Mm, never had my cholesterol check. Why? I can't see it. I feel fine. Yeah. Yeah. So people don't go to primary care doctors for, for various reasons. And then there are not enough of them. And then they still have the same debt load coming out of medical school as specialists have. Which and is they, how much, Ira? 
How much was your debt? We, we'll do a little generational uh, We don't want to go generational there because moment. It, it's, it's different because when I went to medical school, mm-hmm. uh, so you're, you're not even going to believe these I, numbers. No, it's going to make me throw up, right? Right. All, uh, so all the way to the bank. Medical school. I went to the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. It's been uh-huh. there since 1804. It's an old medical school. Mm-hmm. And coming out of medical school, I had no debt. Why? Because my medical education only cost $2,500 a semester. It's $5,000 a year, mm-hmm. which was actually gifted to me by my family. Wow. And now we're seeing students come out of medical school. Average debt load. Quarter million dollars. Quarter million, and everybody okay. wants to pretend like this is at a whatever one percent. No interest rate on your medical school loan, which by the way you do not defer; you start paying it right away, is about two hundred fifty thousand dollars and six to seven eight percent interest rate per year. So that's what you're saddled with. And remember what part of your life this is. You know when you're ready to buy a house and have kids and whatnot. So that's a really that's a that's a big bite to. To bite off when uh, when you could just go to school three more years and make two, three times that. Right. Specialists make 50% more than primary care physicians, and that is illogical. That makes absolutely no sense. So despite the dire shortage of primary care physicians in the United States, it's continuing to get worse. Mm. How, this problem is fixable. It would cost a lot less and help the healthcare system if we incentivized medical students to go into primary care medicine by assisting them with their debt load Mm. and by placing them in rural communities where their debt could be forgiven. That would save the United States of America millions of dollars a year in healthcare. So if we have a national shortage of primary care physicians, why not add enough primary care resident spots to train every new graduate? And if we assume that it costs 100000 a year in salary and training for each additional resident, the total expense for that program would be $100 million. And that's less than, I want you to listen to this, that's less than 0.003% of the 3.6 trillion Americans spend each year on health care with a guaranteed return of investment. So we spend $3.6 million, trillion dollars in healthcare a year. This is less than 0.03% of that. It would save us billions of dollars in healthcare expenses if everyone had a primary care physician. So this is the getting to know you episode, Ira. Okay, so, pay, so all of these listeners have just heard that the world could be a different place if they all had a primary care doctor like you. So my question is, why did you choose this path? Because every day I can walk into the, because it still excites me to go to work, Leanne. I still love what I do. I can go to work and walk in any exam room and every case that day is going to be different. Every room is going to be different. I might walk into one room and I might have to do a laceration repair. I might walk into another room and do a skin biopsy. I might have to do walk in another room and treat a sprain or a fracture or refer out. I might walk into another room and find someone having a cardiac arrhythmia and I need to get an EKG and medicate them or perhaps send them to the hospital. I might have to do insulin management on my next patient. It would bore me to tears to walk into every room and do the same thing over and over again. To me, it would be worse than Groundhog Day. (laughs) That's why I do what I do. Excellent. And I also like people. I also love talking to people. Have you not gotten that I like talking? No. Oh, no. (laughs) So why do you do it? Um, well, I am the first doctor in my family and I don't, I don't even remember ever wanting to be anything else. And I think I always had the expectation of my career in medicine that I would form major long lasting bonds with patients. And this job that I'm doing right now, getting to spend, you know, 30 minutes to an hour with each person is, is my dream. I, all of my patients, for the most part, 
uh, have life experiences that I have not had. And I, it's, it's like each of them has taught me so much about parenting and, you know, religion and wifing and all the other things that I do because, you know, it's like sh it's sharing your life with all these people who are so appreciative of your time. It's a blessing. And it's you, not everybody has a job that it's so easy to help others. Exactly. The learning goes both ways. Yeah. yeah. I learn as much from my patients as they learn from me. And every day is a new opportunity to learn. You know, when you go to medical school and you graduate medical school, your learning just starts. That's not where you, when you stop learning. Mm -hmm. That's when you start learning. And that's been a blessing for what for what I do because I'm never bored at work. I can't think of any day that I've gone to work and ever been bored. It's always something new and with newer things in medical education and, and just the massive amount of medical knowledge that's out there. I, I, I saw a study one time and I, and I misquoted it on the on the priest and the rabbi show. And, and let me correct that quote now, that if you read two journal articles a day, every day for a year, at the end of one year, you would be 176 years behind in your reading and knowledge. And that's how quickly things are changing, and that's the technology. But for me, and being a family doctor, the key is not only knowing what I know, but knowing what I don't know and when to refer. We can usually take care of, what would you think, 95% of what sure, we see in the office? Sure, yeah. But if you don't refer that other 5% out, it could be really bad news. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's kind of, when, when everybody says, okay, well, what, what do you want to be? What kind of doctor do you want to be? If you're not comfortable not knowing the answer, you should not choose family medicine. <laughs> right. You have to be, you've got to be comfortable with, you know, trying things and, you know, asking for help and working with patients and specialists to come up with the answer. Right. It says four levels of, of knowledge. And we, we've discussed this before, but the first is unconscious incompetence. And that's the newbie. I don't know what I don't know. Mm -hmm. So therefore, you think you know everything. Sort of like the internet expert, the person that reads something on the internet. Oh, it must be true. I, yeah, yeah, I don't know what I don't know. Yeah. So I therefore I think. But let's I know call everything. it research anyway. Right? Yeah, let's call, let's yeah, call research. it research. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, there's a second level that's called conscious incompetence, and that means I know what I don't know. I just have to learn a lot more. And that's someone who's been out practicing. Yeah, that's basically years. every single medical resident on their first day. <laughs> right, conscious incompetence. Gee, I don't know anything. The third level is conscious competence. I know what I know and I do it well. And that fourth level of learning is when you're really good at it, it's called unconscious competence. And what unconscious competence is, I don't even have to think about it, I know it so well. And the analogy I use a lot is dancing with the stars. They're not out there counting steps. They know it. It's all muscle memory. Sure. And, and there's certain things that I can do now that's just memory, like adjusting insulin doses, mm -hmm. uh, changing blood pressure medications, knowing when to refer, suturing people up. I can do this stuff basically. You wouldn't want me to do it in my sleep, but I've done it long enough where I can, I can do it in my sleep. How, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that every day is a new adventure and um, I always look forward to who's coming in and giving me a challenge. Yeah. We're down to a couple minutes here. I want to I tell people what we're going to do on our next show because yeah. our next show is going to be really exciting. Yeah, I think we should tell the listeners kind of what, what's our plan for this series. Well, we're going we're gonna to banter back and forth and we're gonna, always going to have some new medical information for part of that show. Are we going to have guests? We're going to have guests. We're, we've got weekly guest coming on and next week we're bringing in dr jason mcmanus from stewart cardiology oh, excellent. he's going to talk about himself did you know that jason mcmanus is also a guitarist Ooh, oh don't no 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 we have to save that for the show we're gonna save that, it for that's the too show. exciting we have okay. to discuss it at the bring show. It in? he's gonna bring it in no right. way no yeah i'm gonna get him to bring in his guitar and yeah. maybe play something and you're for singing us. ira i don't you. sing i don't sing <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like, do you sing well? No, hum a few bars. No, no, I don't sing well. But the show is going to be on atrial fibrillation. The title of the show, 
AFib. It's nothing to lie about. So, Every, that, so that's next. Uh, key next the Thursday. phony laughter. <laughs> yeah, key the phony laughter. I, love it. I was proud of his puns. Yeah. yeah, I'm proud of the puns and I'm proud of the way we've named our shows. I want to thank you out there for listening in this morning. We hope to bring you some entertainment and some education every week. Remember, you can always call in to WSTU at 772-220-9788. Looking forward to next week, Ira. I'm looking really forward to next week, Leanne. All righty. We'll see you next week right here on Paradox. Paradox.